Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let me invite you this morning to take your Bible and join me in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This morning I preach out of a deep burden and concern for gospel ministers. And in particular, men who feel the call to the pastorate. In recent years, we have seen a steady decline in our seminaries, not in enrollment, but in men who sense the call to the assignment of the pastor, the elder, the overseer. Uh, there are many that say, I want to serve the Lord. I don't want to be a pastor. I have seen what churches do to pastors. I've seen the sorrow and the pain and the mistreatment. And so I'm happy to serve the Lord, but I don't want to be a pastor. There are others that have aspired to the office of the pastorate, and I think initially for the right reasons, but over time their motivations become impure. Their hearts become cold toward the things of the Lord. And as a result of that, there's never been a time in America where respect for the ministry has been lower. There once was an occasion in America where if you said, I am a minister, you were held in the highest possible esteem by those in your community. Tragically, that day is no longer. You say that you are a minister, and they begin to wonder, are you in it for the money? Do I need to make sure that I have my wife safely locked away? Do I need to be concerned that you might sexually abuse my children? Let me make something crystal clear to all of us this morning. Out there in the lost world, they see no difference between a Roman Catholic priest and a Baptist preacher. We're all religious persons who lead, who have over the past several years done a lot of really bad, evil, wicked things. So I am burdened. We have a tremendous gap generationally of younger men that are aspiring to be pastors. And we have again a situation in our nation where respect for the ministry is at an all-time low. It's interesting to note that in the Word of God, at least four different times, the Holy Spirit moved to the office of Scriptures to address very specifically what are God's expectations for those who serve as a pastor, as an elder, as an overseer. We see Paul speaking to it, to the Ephesian elders at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 38. We see Paul address it to his son in the ministry, Titus, in Titus 1, 5 through 9. And the apostle Peter addresses it in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. But perhaps the most well-known text when it comes to God's portrait of the man of God and God's expectations for the minister is found in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Now, you may be here this morning and you would say, well, I'm not going to be a pastor, so this text 
is not relevant for me. Yet I would submit to you that the things you find in this text bear remarkable similarity to the passage in Galatians, which talks about bearing the fruit of the Spirit as well as walking in the Spirit. Furthermore, we all need to be very diligently and passionately praying that God would indeed, in our day and time, raise up men who look like 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, who have a strong character, who have a strong constitution, and who are willing to do what I think is the most wonderful thing this side of heaven, and that is pastor a local church knowing that it will have its good days and its bad days, its up times and its down times, but... I sense that I can do nothing other than this assignment on behalf of King Jesus. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Not given to wine, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well. Having his children in submission with all reverence for, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover... He must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Four words, I think, capture well what Paul is trying to say to us here in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The first is the word integrity. The second is the word authenticity. The third is the word dependability. And finally, the word reliability. In other words, first of all, we need to see the man of God is a man of integrity. This is rooted in his private life. Cotton Mather, the great American Puritan, said this of the high calling of the pastorate. The office of the Christian ministry, rightly understood, is the most honorable and most important that any man in the whole world can ever sustain. And it will be one of the wonders and employments of eternity to consider the reasons why the wisdom and the goodness of God assigned this office to imperfect and guilty man. And yet that is exactly what God has done. He has assigned this office to imperfect and guilty man. And at the root of this office, there must be integrity. Paul begins by noting that there must be an integrity in terms of our motive for service. It must be a pure motive. He begins by saying in verse 1, this is a faithful saying. That phrase occurs five times in the pastorals. It never occurs anywhere else. It's unique to the writings of Paul and to the pastoral epistles. When you see that phrase, this is a faithful saying. It means this is an important saying. This is a fundamental saying. This is a well-known truth. And then he cites the statement, a man who desires the position of a bishop, of an overseer, he desires a good work. You'll notice that in the English text, the word desires occurs twice, but it's two different words. The first word has the idea of aspiration. It has the idea of reaching for something, reaching out and aspiring for what? What the Bible calls here a good work. 
But the second word has more the idea of a consuming passion. It is more of an internal kind of idea. So in essence, he is saying outwardly and internally, you are reaching after, you feel the need to pursue what he calls a good work. That is the work of the bishop. It is the Greek word episkopos, which means the overseer. And of course, you have learned in systematic theology that there are three interchangeable words that you find in the New Testament to talk about those who lead the church. There is the elder, the presbyteros. There is the overseer, the episkopos, and there is the pastor, the poiman. All of those used interchangeably, but to give us a different perspective and nuance on the responsibilities of those who lead and pastor the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, look, outwardly there'll be this desire to reach after a good thing. But inwardly there will also be a consuming passion that will say in your heart, I cannot do anything else than this. Spurgeon used to wisely say to young men who would come to him and say, uh, Dr. Spurgeon, Pastor Spurgeon, I am thinking about being a pastor. I think maybe God wants me to do this. What do you think? And Spurgeon would say, if you can do anything else, go and do it. It should be such a consuming, burning passion in your soul that you could not imagine doing anything other than this. Over the years, people have asked me, uh, Danny, if you were not involved in gospel ministry, what would you do? And the answer is, I don't know. I am not trained to do anything else. I don't want to do anything other than preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. John MacArthur says it beautifully here. The man truly called to the ministry is marked by both an inward consuming passion and a disciplined outwardly pursuit. For him, the ministry is not the best option. It is the only option. There is nothing else he could do with his life that would fulfill him. And therefore, there must be a right motive. And you say, well, you say there's this crisis in ministry. There is. Well, I'm not sure that's what I ought to do. Then don't. Then don't do it. We don't need those in it that are not convinced that is where they belong. But if you desire that office, the Bible says you desire a good work. And so he speaks in terms of having the right motive. It must be a pure one. But then he talks about one's manner of life in terms of it being a praiseworthy life. And perhaps the key phrase in these seven verses is the first phrase of verse two, where it says the bishop, the overseer must be blameless. The NIV has the phrase, he must be above reproach. In other words, you live a life in such a way that it is not open to warranted and justified attack and criticism in terms of the life that you live. The text does not say you have to be sinless, but the text is clear. A bishop, an elder, a pastor, he must be blameless. No accusation can be brought against you, that will stick. Understand, people will attack you. People will criticize you. People will malign you and misrepresent you, but it will hit and fall off because there's no substance to what they have said in their attack against you. There is a constant and consistent pattern of life that follows you all the days of your ministry. 
John Chrysostom, the golden mouth, understood very well how essential this is. He said this, and I quote, The minister's shortcomings simply cannot be concealed. Even the most trivial soon get known. However, trifling their offenses, these little things seem great to others since everyone measures sin, not by the size of the offense, but by the standing of the sinner. And indeed, because we have been called to stand high and stand above the crowd, you say, well, that's, that's not fair. It has nothing to do with fair. It is reality. Mark Driscoll as well said the reason they let us stand up here high so people can have a better shot at us. And I'll tell you this, understand something, the higher you go, the more they will shoot and the clearer target that they have. And therefore, it's absolutely certain, it's absolutely necessary, if by God's grace, He raises you up in terms of status and position and influence, you need to drop down, down, down on your knees and your face on the ground, pleading for God's protection, God's mercy, and God's grace. Gregory the Great said it this way, He who is required by the necessity of his position to speak the highest things is also compelled by the same necessity to exemplify the highest things. So as you move through verse 2, you see that the text says that the elder, the bishop, the overseer must be temperate. That is clear-headed, self-controlled. He thinks wisely and he lives life with balance. He's sober-minded, which means he's prudent. Uh, He's thoughtful. He's well-disciplined both in life and also in mind. I like to say it this way, the sober-minded man sees life as God sees life and then orders his priorities accordingly. The text says that the bishop must be of good behavior. Again, it speaks of a disciplined life, one who is respectable, well-ordered. You don't live a chaotic life. You live a well-ordered life. You, in other words, have your act together. And then the text says he must be hospitable. Literally, he must be a lover of strangers. In other words, he has both an open heart and also an open home. He has a friendly and approachable manner to his life. You say, Danny, how would you summarize what he is saying here? Simply this. You and I need to be the kind of men... That we can take all these little boys that run around this campus and throughout these apartments and we should be able to say, you see that man right there? I hope you grow up to be just like him. I hope you grow up to love Jesus like you see that man love Jesus. I hope you grow up to love your wife the way you see that man loving his wife. I hope you grow up to love your children the way that man loves and cares for his children. And I hope you grow up to love the Bible and the lost and the things of God. It would please your dad if you would grow up to be that kind of man. Might it not also be that by God's grace we could say, if you grow up to be like your dad, with all of my imperfections, that will still be okay. And gentlemen, anything less is shameful. It's just shameful. And so the Bible says we need to have men who have integrity rooted in their private life. But then also, the Bible says the man of God is a man of authenticity reflected in his personal life. And I highlight the two that stand out again in this text. One, your relationship to your wife. 
and two, your relationship to your children. First of all, verse 2, a bishop, he must be blameless, the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman kind of man. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the theological debate this morning as to exactly, precisely how this should be understood in the context of divorce and polygamy. That's for another day. What I can say to you is this. Any man who occupies the office of the pastor should live his life in such a way that his wife knows, his kids know, his friends know, even those who don't like you know, there walks a one-woman kind of man. He is in love with his wife. He is devoted to his wife. And it is clear as it can possibly be, he is a one-woman kind of man. Just recently, as all of you know, that at least consult your email on a regular basis, I sent out a, just a short note from myself concerning integrity in ministry. And once again, I was reminded by some recent events and some recent correspondence of the necessity of keeping this before our mind's eye. In response to that email, I received this from not a man, but from a wife. And she said this, Dear Brother Aiken, thank you for your challenging and encouraging words. Chris and I have been married 30 years, and we have had the same commitment to never be alone with the opposite sex except each other. We have tried to teach this and encourage this to younger men and women overseas. We have been with the IMB for 23 years. I remember some years ago in Peru working with a group of ladies. After two years of working with them in various ministries, the whole group made an effort to inform me how they had never known a married man that did not cheat on his wife, but how my husband was one of a kind, and he was the only man, especially the only foreign man, which they knew had never cheated on his wife. I believe the testimony of my husband to those women made a huge impression, even though I was the one witnessing to them up to four times a week for two years and longer. I am so thankful for my godly and faithful husband. Yes, brothers, we need to conduct our lives in such a way that there's never even the possibility of an accusation being brought against us that we have in some manner been unfaithful to the woman that God has placed in our lives. Of course, that means giving good time and attention to your marriage and to your family. And again, many men allow this to become an area that gets out of balance. A recent survey that I read noted that the average minister works somewhere around 55 hours a week. In survey, 80% of ministers say they believe ministry has negatively impacted their families. 94% of their families feel the pressure of the pastoral ministry, and yet over half, 64% of your congregation, expect you and your family to live at a higher moral standard than do they. I'll say it again. Is it fair? That begs the question. It is reality. You need to understand this morning, plain and simple, if you aspire to be a pastor and God has called you to be a pastor, you are accepting the responsibility that you live in a glass house. It comes with the territory, whether you like it or not. And therefore, people are going to watch you. 
They're going to watch you very carefully. And given the culture in which we live, where there are so many broken homes and so many fractured lives, they will look to you hoping and praying, is it really the case that somebody's life is different? Somebody's marriage is really good. Somebody's family really has it all together. And so the text says you must be committed to your wife. The text also says you need to have control of your children. Verse 4. He must be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence for. If a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Paul employs what we call an argument from the lesser to the greater. Establishing the point that the family, in a real sense, is the proving ground for leadership in the church. The word rules there means to direct and lead and preside. The word well means with excellence. And the word submission means bringing them under proper authority and proper control. Warden Wearsby, who for years pastored uh, the Moody Church in Chicago, says it quite well. If a man's own children cannot obey and respect him then his church is not likely to respect and obey his leadership either. Guys, hear me. Too many men have sacrificed their marriage and their children on the altar, now listen to me, of their ministry. Not the ministry God gave them, their ministry. The ministry that they conjured up. The ministry that they put in place. The ministry that they allowed to overtake them so that they actually spent more time with other women and other children than they did their own. And you hear me and you hear me well. If there's going to be one woman in the world that you seek to bring to conformity to the image of Christ, make that woman your wife. If there are going to be any children in this world that you seek to see grow up to love and serve the Lord Jesus, then you make those children your children. I have never met a man that could look me in the face and with integrity say, you know what, uh, Danny? I lost my ministry because I spent too much time with my wife and my kids. I have never met that man. I don't have enough fingers and toes to count the men that I do know that are friends of mine that are not in ministry today because they did not spend the time they should have with their wife and with their children. In a gracious, kind, but firm way, you let your church know, I will not come to every committee meeting. I will not come to every social. I will not come to every party. I will take a day off because it is the spiritual thing to do. And it will not be Sunday. I work on Sunday. And I will go to my kids' ball games. I will go to my kids' ballet if they do that kind of junk. Why they would, I don't know. But if they, you know, if if they do, you go. Okay? You go to your kids' stuff. I'm going to my kids' stuff. I remember John MacArthur coming to Southern Seminary some years ago, and he said something. In fact, afterwards, I went up to him and I said, you know, you said something on the radio years ago that greatly shaped my approach to my ministry and my family life. And he said, well, what did I say? And I said, well, it was really a very simple statement. You just said one time when you were preaching that you made a deal with your kids. And the deal was this. If you come hear me preach, I'll go watch you play ball. And he said, I did. I never missed a game. 
I went to their games. They came to hear me preach. I thought that was a fair exchange, and so do I. Your kids come to church. Your kids come to hear you preach. You go to their things as well, and you let them know that outside of Jesus and their mother, nothing matters more to you than do they. Authenticity reflected in your personal life. Number three, the man of God is a man of dependability. This is revealed in his pastoral life. Two things stand out in verse 2 and verse 3. Number one, you've got to be able to teach the Scriptures. And number two, you must teach by example. Look at the end of verse 2 where he says, after being sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, you must be able to teach. I could spend a long time here saying a lot of things. I'll just simply share quickly what is in, uh, on my heart. First of all, I am grateful that there seems to be a revival once again among a younger generation in terms of your love for expository preaching. Uh, I grieve over the desert experience that my generation went through for the last decade or so with this felt need stuff, this seeker-sensitive stuff that was just a bunch of garbage when everything is said and done. People don't grow because you preach nice little ditties that tell them how to be a nicer person. They will die and go to hell as nicer people. We need people that with courage and conviction stand up and week after week after week after week simply preach the Word of God. Book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word, and you preach in such a way that Jesus is always the hero of every story. If you are not Christocentric in your preaching, whatever you're doing, you are not a Christian preacher. And God forgive you for blaspheming Him if you ever stand behind the sacred desk and preach and do not mention Jesus and His gospel. Shame on you for being derelict in the responsibility that the Lord has given you. People don't need to be nicer. People need to get saved. People don't need to have how-to sermons. They need to see the greatness and the glory of God found in Jesus. Now, let me say this. You preach the Bible, not your pet theological system. Now, I have a theological system. You can pigeonhole me in a number of areas as it relates to eschatology and as it relates to soteriology and as it relates to pneumatology, and I can walk you on down that road. But folks don't need me to preach my theological system. They need me to preach the Bible. They need me to preach the Word of God. As I say so often, and maybe if I sit long enough, one of these days people will get it, you need to have a text-driven theology. Will that mean you will live with more tension in your system? Yes. But you will be more faithful to the Word of God. And let me say this and I'll move on. Where the Word of God clearly speaks, you speak clearly, decisively, no backing up, no compromise. But where the Bible does not speak so clearly, be gracious, be humble. And when it is not a matter of orthodoxy or heresy, give room for respectful disagreement. Again, two of my dearest friends in all the world are Al Mohler and James Merritt. They happen to be right in terms of their view of the millennium. They are premillennial. However, when it comes to the doctrine of the tribulation, like a number of my faculty, they are in serious theological error holding to a post 
tribulational view. And I have shared with them on a number of occasions that when I am raptured on the way up, I will wave at them saying, I told you so. You say, uh, they're uh, your best friends, my best friends. And you worked with one of them for like eight years. Sure did. And you're telling me, never an issue, never a problem. We had fun picking and playing and debating with one another. But bottom line, your particular view of the tribulation, the number of points you want to put on a John Calvin system, bottom line, that is not a first-line Orthodox, crucial, non-negotiable issue. And if you make it one, you again prostitute your assignment as a pastor. And in my judgment, you are derelict and irresponsible in the fulfilling of your assignment. I'll tell you a story because you need to hear it. When I was at Southern Seminary, Dr. Moeller sends me an email one day and says, you'll enjoy this. He had received an email from one of our graduates who was lamenting the fact that he was pastoring a church, to use his own words, that was stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and most likely filled with unregenerates. And he said, I'm having a really difficult time because I'm right now in the midst of a 12-part series on predestination and election, and it is not going well. My good five-point Calvinist friend, Dr. Moeller, wrote him back and said, I, uh, I want to begin by saying I'm so sorry that you're having a difficult time and I grieve over what is taking place in your church. My counsel is this. Get on your knees and repent. What you have done is ministerial malpractice. What would possess you to do something so stupid as to preach for 12 weeks on predestination and election? He said, understand, this is a five-point Calvinist who is writing this back to you. But the thought of doing such a thing would never enter any responsible minister's mind. Shame on you. Repent then ask your people to forgive you, and maybe they won't fire you. He wrote back and said, obviously, I wrote to the wrong person for any sympathy. He sure did. He didn't need sympathy. He needed a spiritual kick in the backside. That's what he needed. That is not what it means, brothers and sisters, to preach the Word and to be able to teach. But we also lead by example, and I'll just note quickly verse 3. You're not to be given to wine. It means literally addicted to wine. In our culture, I'm not going to back up on this. The wise posture is abstinence. It is both in terms of wisdom and witness clearly the best way to go. Don't get near something that has brought such devastation and damage to so many. You say, well, in the millennium and in the eternal state, wine will be redeemed. Yes, when we don't have a sin nature to screw it all up. I'll move on. Not violent, which means you don't lose your temper and you're not easily one to fly off the handle. No, in contrast, you are gentle. You're not quarrelsome and you're not a lover of money. Again, I know few that get into the ministry for money. But tragically, I meet some that money becomes their motivation. It becomes the bottom line in terms of where they will serve and what they will do. And if money becomes your God, then obviously Jesus isn't. 
And so the Bible says you need to be dependable, rebuilding your pastoral life. And then finally, you need to be a man of reliability, respected in your public life. Just note very quickly, verse 6, you must avoid the place of temptation, not a novice, not a new believer, lest being puffed up with pride, you fall into the same condemnation as did the devil. And so if you happen to be here today and you're a new believer, wonderful. You're not qualified to be a pastor. There needs to be a time of testing, a time of maturing, because the fact of the matter is we're all susceptible to pride in different ways, on different levels. But in particular, those who are young, those who are new in the faith, with all their zeal and all their passion, all their excitement, often lack judgment. And if they're not careful, they can become prideful. And pride is at the very root and heart of sin itself. And so you must avoid the place of temptation. But then finally, verse 7, you must aspire to have a good testimony or a good reputation. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the snare, the trap of the devil. Recently, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Dr. Frank Page, said that Unfortunately, many people out there in the world see Baptists as mean-spirited, angry. We're in opposition to everything. And I fear that he's probably correct. Now, don't misunderstand. Is it going to be the case that the world opposes us in terms of where we stand? Yes. I don't expect the world to applaud us on our view of marriage and family. I don't expect the world to applaud us on our pro-life posture. I don't expect the world to applaud us in terms of our opposition to the homosexual lifestyle. I don't expect the world to applaud us in a lot of areas. Okay. But brothers and sisters, it's one thing for them to oppose us for that which we stand. It's another thing for them to oppose us because of the way we stand. And I can remember several years ago in a church, in a Bible conference, where a very powerful, passionate preacher got off on the evils and the debauchery and the abomination of homosexuality. And all of a sudden, the entire, well, for the most part, entire congregation was on their feet. And a guy beside me started doing this. He said, yeah, yeah, we just ought to go out and stone them all. And even though I was very, very young in the ministry, very, very passionate, in my spirit something said, that's not right. That's not good. That's not helpful. That is not like Jesus. And therefore, we will not apologize for where we stand. But God forgive us if we stand in such a way that the offense that keeps people from the gospel is not the gospel. But it's you and me in the way in which we stand. Jonathan Edwards, that great Puritan and a man God mildly used in the First Awakening, said it this way. I go out to preach with two propositions in mind. First, every person ought to give his life to Christ. Second, whether or not anyone else gives him his life, I will give him mine. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the wisdom that we find in your word. 
And thank you so much that there's indeed a marvelous picture of what you expect for those who lead your church. And God, it is my prayer, and I believe my brothers and sisters will join me, that, Lord, you will raise up more and more and more and more men who feel the calling to be a pastor, an elder, the pastor-teacher of a church. And that, Lord, you will help them pursue the character qualities we find in this text of 1 Timothy 3. And that, Lord, you will give them the strong constitution that they will need when opposition comes and days are difficult. Dear Lord Jesus, we need great pastors. Our churches are suffering for the lack thereof. So, dear God, raise up more from our midst. Make them strong for Jesus. And may they indeed be the, the genesis of a wonderful resurgence, even a, a renaissance of godly, evangelistic, mission-minded churches that have as their passion bringing honor to Jesus and taking His gospel across our nation and around the world. We ask this and pray this in Your Son's strong and wonderful name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.